You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 102, Cherokee War in the South. While the British were focusing their forces on New York and, to a lesser extent, Canada, the southern colonies slash states could not take it easy. Southerners had defeated an organization of Tory militia at Moores Creek Bridge in North Carolina in February 1776. They had then defeated the regulars at Fort Sullivan outside of Charleston, South Carolina in June. But even with the Tories captured and dissipated, and the British Army and Navy chased back north in abject failure, there was still one hostile group with which to contend. On July 1, 1776, the Cherokee began a series of coordinated raids on western settlements all through Georgia, the Carolinas, and even Virginia. Patriots accused the area's British agent, John Stewart, for encouraging the Cherokee to go to war. Stewart had tried to encourage the Cherokee to fight in 1775 and early 1776, even supplying them with ammunition. But Stewart had been forced to flee from his home in Charleston to St. Augustine, Florida, in early 1776. Stewart had made clear that the British would be happy if the Cherokee attacked rebel forces, but he now had to operate from afar. To make things even more difficult, the Patriots kept his family under house arrest in Charleston. Another loyalist named Alexander Cameron who had a Cherokee wife, was apparently more active in motivating the Cherokee to go to war. When he left his farm to join the Cherokee in the spring, many were concerned that his intentions were to start a Cherokee uprising. Those concerns proved correct, though Cameron was far from the only instigator. The Cherokee did not need much provocation. They believed, correctly, that the colonists would continue to push them further west out of their lands. The main reason they had not fought back already was a fear that the colonists would win a military confrontation, as had happened during the Cherokee Uprising in 1760, something I discussed way back in episode 15. Now the British Indian agents only had to say, go for it. Britain would not back up the colonies because the colonies were in rebellion, so the Cherokee saw the opportunity to fight back. The most recent incident that convinced the Cherokee of the need to fight was the Treaty of Sycamore Shoals, which was signed in March 1775. There, a group of colonists from North Carolina, with Daniel Boone acting as their agent, agreed to purchase about 20 million acres of land, covering most of what is today Kentucky and part of northern Tennessee. In exchange, the various tribes received roughly 10,000 pounds sterling in cash, debt forgiveness, and trade goods. At the time, the treaty violated the King's Proclamation of 1763, 
which forbade colonists from moving into lands west of the Appalachian Mountains. Many Cherokee chiefs also objected to the treaty and refused to sign. Those who did agree took all the cash and prizes offered. Many of those later argued that they thought they were simply granting hunting and travel rights over the territory or temporary leases, not exclusive ownership. By 1776, most Cherokee recognized that enforcement of the treaty would spell their doom. Cherokee chiefs from all over the region met with each other and debated the merits of an all-out attack. They were convinced that military victory was the only way to prevent further colonial encroachments onto their land. Also in attendance were representatives of the Iroquois, who still maintained official neutrality. However, those attending the conference encouraged the Cherokee to go to war and told the assembled about Patriot attacks on Iroquois settlements farther north. Delaware and Shawnee representatives from the Ohio Valley had similar stories to tell. British agents let it be known that they would supply arms and ammunition. They also hoped the Cherokee would coordinate their attacks with General Clinton's attacks on the coast, which I already discussed in the Battle of Fort Sullivan, fought at the end of June. Seizing the opportunity while the colonists and British were still divided, the summer of 1776 seemed like an ideal time for the Cherokee to reassert control and take back their portion of the frontier. With British logistical support and promises that the king had no objections to them retaking this territory, this was their best opportunity to push back the colonists and reclaim their land. The Patriots were well aware of the Cherokee support for the Tories in the western parts of the colonies, and had also heard stories about the plans to go for an all-out war. In June, the Patriot militia sent a small contingent of 33 men, led by James McCall, to visit Cherokee villages in the Carolina backcountry. Their purported mission was to negotiate for the return of stolen property on earlier raids. Their true secret mission was to capture the British Indian agent Alexander Cameron and bring him back as a prisoner. They met with several villages without incident. On the evening of June 26, McCall met with a group of elders at the Cherokee village of Seneca. There, a group of warriors burst into the room and took him prisoner. At the same time, another group attacked his soldiers, who were camped just outside of town. The Cherokee killed four men, but the rest escaped, spending the next few weeks quietly making their way back east to friendlier territory. Captain McCall remained a prisoner for several months, regularly threatened with torture and death. Months later, he was able to make his escape with the help of a friendly female Cherokee and made his way to Virginia. The July 1st attacks struck all along the western borders of the southern colonies hitting isolated farms and villages, ruthlessly killing men, women, and children. They took some prisoners to return to camp as slaves. The Cherokee tortured some of the prisoners to death, including children. There was a reason why settlers genuinely feared the natives. The Cherokee were clearly siding with the British in their attacks, not striking at colonists randomly. Loyalist farms and towns mark their homes with Passover poles, basically a pole with a white cloth wrapped around it, so that Cherokee would know to pass over them without harm. As for the Patriots, anyone not killed in the first strike fled to area forts for protection. 
while the militia mobilized to do battle. These attacks came right on the heels of the American victory at Fort Sullivan at the end of June. General Charles Lee was still in the Carolinas when the attacks began. As commander of the Southern Department, Lee provided some strategic advice but did not seem ready to deploy his Continentals anywhere or march himself into the field of battle. Remember, he remained near the coast, moving down to Savannah at one point. He planned to attack British outposts in Florida, but nothing seemed to come of it. Militia did most of the fighting along the frontier, and Lee did not seem to bother himself with that. Instead, Lee spent much of his time writing letters to Washington in New York and Congress in Philadelphia. During this time, he seemed deeply concerned of rumors that a British general might join the Continental cause and be placed ahead of him in the command structure. He also wrote to the French governor of Haiti asking for arms and ammunition, though it does not appear he got very far with that either. Most of the fighting consisted of short hit-and-run raids rather than major campaigns that would need a strategic commander. As a result, Lee accomplished rather little. Inland, though, fighting broke out all over. Now, it's going to be impossible to discuss every little raid or massacre that took place over the summer without making this a 20-part episode, so I'm going to try to cover a few of the larger events only. While there were few colonists living as far west as present-day Tennessee and Kentucky, those few who were there, deep inside Cherokee territory, found themselves surrounded by hostile warriors. Although I guess I need to start calling the colonists Americans, since after July 4th, the people living in the South considered themselves living in states independent of Britain. One of the chiefs who had opposed the Treaty of Sycamore Shoals and who had walked out of the signing was a man named Dragging Canoe. He became a leading warrior in the Cherokee raids. On July 20th, at an area known as Indian Flats in present-day Tennessee, Dragging Canoe sent an advance party forward looking for militia. The militia ambushed the advance party and wounded several. About 150 militia chased the retreating party back to the main body of Cherokee. The two sides fought a pitched battle in which the Cherokee suffered 13 killed and more wounded, including Dragging Canoe. The militia suffered only four wounded before the Cherokee broke off the attack and retreated. Around the same time, the Cherokee began to lay siege to another inland fort where a small group of Americans had gathered for protection. A militia force of about 75 defended Fort Watauga, a.k.a. Fort Caswell. The Americans discovered the Cherokee before the attack and successfully secured the fort. The Cherokee attacked for about three hours, attempting to set fire to the fort wall. One woman fended off such an attack by dumping boiling water over the wall. After the initial attack failed, the Cherokee began to besiege the fort. Following his retreat from Indian Flats, Dragging Canoe joined the siege with his warriors. The Cherokee managed to capture at least two defenders who left the fort. They burned one of them at the stake, a teenaged boy. They also planned to burn a captured woman, but relented when another longtime female prisoner who lived with the Cherokee for years begged them not to kill her. After about two weeks, a large militia relief force arrived to break the siege. At the same time, in North Carolina, Cherokee raids killed dozens along the Catawba River 
resulting in about 120 women and children taking refuge in an area fort commanded by militia Lieutenant Colonel Charles McDowell. The fort had only about 10 soldiers. The Cherokee had ambushed another contingent of eight soldiers in nearby Quaker Meadows, killing and scalping seven of them, while an eighth survived by hiding under a log and returned to tell the tale. The remaining soldiers in what became known as Fort McDowell were able to hold the Cherokee at bay for several weeks until a larger militia relief force arrived. In South Carolina, a number of settlers took refuge at Lindley's Fort. A group of about 150 militia also took shelter there while awaiting a larger contingent to do battle with the Cherokee. At about 1 a.m. on the morning of July 15th, a group of nearly 200 attackers, about half Cherokee and half Loyalist militia, attacked the fort, thinking it was only civilians, and not realizing that the militia had entered the fort only a few hours earlier. Both sides traded shots all night until the attackers learned of a much larger relief force that was on the way. They broke off their attack and left the fort, but the much larger relief force of around 430 Patriot militia pursued them and captured 13 of the attackers. The prisoners were shipped to the jail at 96. North Georgia also saw some raiding, but much of the frontier was spared by the fact that the mostly Creek Indians lived there, not Cherokee. The Creek had debated going to war alongside the Cherokee. However, the Southern Colonies and the Continental Congress had requested the services of George Galfin, a popular trader who had a good relationship with the Creek chiefs. Galfin managed to keep the Creek out of the war and reduce George's exposure to Indian attack. The Patriots, of course, organized themselves quickly to meet the serious Cherokee attack. As I have already alluded to in the relief of several besieged forts, by early August the Patriots had militia brigades in the thousands from Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia marching through the backcountry to relieve outposts and protect civilians. The Patriots also had more than protection on their minds. They aimed to push the Cherokee out of the frontier area once and for all. This meant a brutal campaign of burning Cherokee villages, killing men, women, and children, and stealing or destroying all Cherokee crops and food stores, which would inevitably lead to starvation later in the year. One campaign, known as the Rutherford Campaign, was led by Militia General Griffith Rutherford through what is today western North Carolina and eastern Tennessee. Rutherford teamed up with another large brigade from South Carolina. They also had the support of the Catawba Indians, who occupied limited areas on the northern frontier. The combined force burned dozens of Cherokee villages during late summer and early fall. The army fought several pitched battles with Cherokee warriors, including Dragging Canoe. But the militia's superior numbers and better access to arms and ammunition eventually forced the Cherokee to retreat to the west. Another group from Virginia, led by militia colonel William Christian, sometimes called Christie, led nearly 2,000 Virginia militia on a rampage over the fall and early winter of 1776 driving the Cherokee out of southern Virginia and northern North Carolina. The fighting, which went on for months, brought out savagery on both sides. 
provincial governments paid for Cherokee scalps. Soldiers on both sides made little distinction between combatants and civilians. Fighting was often hand-to-hand, and neither side had much interest in accepting a surrender. You won or you died. Death was usually preferable to either side than being captured. Americans were happy to torture any captured Cherokee as payback for what the Cherokee were doing with American prisoners. By some estimates, the Patriots killed over 2,000 Cherokee out of a population of an estimated 13,000. The Cherokee had only about 3,000 armed warriors, but many of those killed were civilians, including women and children. Patriots burned at least 52 Cherokee towns and innumerable smaller encampments. The Catawba had allied themselves with the Patriots and assisted in attacks on the Cherokee. Only a small number of Creek joined the fight, with most of the Creek opting for neutrality. Even worse, Patriots' scorched earth policy of burning all villages and food stored meant that many Cherokee would go without food or shelter over the winter. The fighting continued through the summer and fall and into the winter. General Lee worked out a plan with General Moultrie to mount an expedition against St. Augustine in Florida. This was where the British Indian agents continued to operate and attempt to encourage the Indians to fight the Patriots. Other agents operated out of Pensacola and Mobile, but those were farther away. St. Augustine also held some prisoners of war, making it an attractive target for the Continental Army. As I mentioned before, General Lee had actually set off on an expedition against St. Augustine in September, but opted not to see the offensive through after he received orders to return to New York. About the same time, General Moultrie received notice that the Continental Congress had granted him a commission as a brigadier general in the Continental Army. General Moultrie mounted several expeditions to St. Augustine, but resistance from the Creek Indians, the offensive measures by British regulars in St. Augustine, and most importantly, malaria outbreaks among the soldiers, caused all of the expeditions to turn back before reaching St. Augustine. By spring 1777, most of the older chiefs were ready to make peace with the Americans, ceding land and returning captured property. In May, the South Cherokee signed the Treaty of DeWitt's Corner, where the Cherokee ceded almost all their land in what is today South Carolina, as well as parts of Georgia. In July, the Middle and Northern Cherokee, at the Treaty of Long Island of Holston, confirmed the cession of the lands from the Treaty of Sycamore Shoals, as well as additional lands in Virginia and North Carolina. In total, the treaties to end hostilities cost the Cherokee over 5 million acres of land. The treaties also required the Cherokee to return any prisoners, as well as any stolen horses, runaway slaves, or other property. They further agreed to turn over any Loyalists or British agents to Fort Rutledge for trial. Beyond land, one chief even offered 500 warriors to fight alongside the Patriots against the British, though the Americans declined this offer. The final article of the Treaty of DeWitt's Corner ended with, The hatchet shall be forever buried, and there shall be a universal peace and friendship established between the Cherokee and South Carolina and Georgia. So yeah, after this treaty, a close and tender relationship would grow into peace and harmony between the two groups. 
except there was no way that would happen, and no one seriously believed it, even at the time. Many of the younger warriors refused to surrender, although they could not continue to fight in the face of overwhelming forces. They moved their warriors further west into what is today Middle Tennessee and northern Alabama. Dragging Canoe was one of these chiefs. He formed a confederacy of displaced Tories, his own Cherokee, as well as members of the Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, and Shawnee tribes, who all wanted to continue the fight against the settlers. They would continue to raid and attack settlements for the remainder of the war, and would continue for more than a decade after the British recognized American independence. So once again, the Cherokee battling the settlers only led to another large loss of land, just as it had in 1760. Beyond that, the raids accomplished almost nothing for the British, except perhaps tying up a few munitions, men, and supplies that might have been deployed further north. But the Continental Army did not deploy any troops south beyond those who probably would have been there as a guard against British coastal landings anyway. Most of the fighters came from local militia. If anything, the attacks mostly provided the militia with combat experience that benefited them when the British tried to attack the South a few years later. The experience also meant that the Cherokee would be unwilling to engage and cooperate with British regulars during that later invasion. The Cherokee had been weakened and also had no assurances that future cooperation would not result in the loss of even more land and property to the southern states. Next week, we head north again, where General Howe finally engages the Continental Army at the Battle of Brooklyn. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, Whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, thank you for joining another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before I get to that, I want to thank our Robert Morris Circle supporter on Patreon for his continued support. Dave Salvatore releases a short five-minute podcast every day about an event in the American Revolution on the anniversary of that event. It's called Today in American Revolution History. You can also get a written version of it via email or go listen to the podcast. Go to AmericanRevolutionToday.com for more details. Dave has also been working on a special project related to Fort Billingsport, a small fort on the Delaware River 
designed to prevent the British from attacking Philadelphia. You can read much more about that project on his website as well. So, today's episode covers an entire year-long campaign that took place between Native Americans and Patriots in the South. Fighting with Native Americans, and most fighting in the South before the British launched their major offensive later in the war, tend to get ignored by most histories. I thought about chopping up this story into multiple episodes so that we could approach it as it stretched out over the course of the year and keeping it in line with the other episodes. But I thought it played better as a single episode, so we got a little ahead of ourselves in this story, and of course we'll be going back to mid-1776 next week. The real significance of this event is that it was really a case of poor timing. The Cherokee could have been a great ally for the British if they had coordinated their attacks a little better. Now, of course, these attacks were supposed to have begun in a coordinated attack with the British attack that eventually took place against Fort Sullivan in Charleston Harbor. If the British had succeeded in capturing part of Charleston Harbor at the same time that the Cherokee were attacking the West, it could have become a much greater nightmare for the Patriots. But when General Clinton's attack failed at Fort Sullivan, there was no easy way to call off the Cherokee attacks that had been in the planning for months. So when the British sailed away and left the Cherokee to fight on their own, the Patriots were able to decimate them and force them to move west. If the Cherokee had sat tight and entered the war only after British regulars came to storm the South in larger numbers, they would have been much more effective. That, of course, is easy to see in hindsight, but of course we understood why they acted when they did at the time. Now, there was no one large decisive battle in this campaign. There were dozens, perhaps hundreds of small attacks against settlers and Native Americans. And as I said, it was a pretty brutal fight with little mercy given on either side. And as was usually the case for Native Americans who went into war with settlers, the result was defeat and cession of more land. From the Native American perspective, this is really a pretty depressing pattern. If you want to read more about this campaign, I recommend the book A Demand of Blood, The Cherokee War of 1776 by Nadia Dean. At around 400 pages, the book gives a pretty thorough account of events, at least to the extent we have records. There seems to be some criticism of the book by Native Americans. However, their criticisms seem to be more about the perspective than the facts themselves. The book was first published in 2012. The author, Dean, appears to be primarily a reporter and photographer. I think this is her only published book. She's also produced a movie about Alexander Cameron, the Indian agent who was working for the British during these events. There is a lot more detail to read, and as I said, I covered many months in one short episode, so if you want to go back and read all the details about this event, Dean's book, A Demand of Blood, is a great option. My online recommendation this week is another good website, ncpedia.org. This is a site run by the North Carolina Library System. It has a wide variety of articles dealing with North Carolina history. I've cited a few of these articles in today's episodes and also in many previous episodes dealing with North Carolina events. 
If you're searching for things related to North Carolina history, ncpedia.org is a great place to start. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.